Hello and welcome to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs, writer and mostly sensible habit maker. This week's episode inspiration comes from two people. One is longtime listener and writer Kat Rohde, who requested an episode on being soberish. So this one is for you, Kat. The second comes from my friend who I was chatting to recently. She is a self-confessed ex-party gal who just can't keep up anymore. She has kids, but they're eight and 10. So being hungover isn't that big a deal, but she just doesn't want to do it anymore. She still goes out most Friday and Saturday nights and has a few drinks most nights during the week, but she's pretty keen to quit doing that at all. Alcohol. It's such a loaded topic, even more so depending on where you come from. If you're from Australia, the UK, New Zealand, or America, chances are alcohol is a big part of your life, whether you drink or not. So I can remember traveling to Indonesia with World Vision many, many years ago, and the young team there was so wonderful. They took us out for dinner and to karaoke, all totally booze-free. I was cool with that, but it was shocking to me how shocking it was to watch these young people socialize without alcohol. Not only was booze difficult to get, being a predominantly Muslim country, but it just wasn't a part of these young people's lives. And honestly, I was kind of jealous. My youth was centered around alcohol. Being a theater kid, it was all about finishing a show and having a few drinks and after parties or pretty much any kind of parties. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be raised in a country where booze just wasn't that big a deal. The other day I was chatting to a mate about vaccine hesitancy and how people are scared of getting the COVID vax, which honestly is fair enough. It's all very new and it's been a really weird time recently and it's expecting a lot for people to just go, yeah, cool, vax me up. For the record though, I'm very pro-vax and I would have been vaccinated yesterday if it was available to me and I would take any vaccination that was offered, but that's besides the point. I was curious to see what the number one cause of death is for people in different age groups in Australia so I could figure out what we should actually be scared of. So yeah, this is uh, how grim I get when I start thinking about things like this. So the number one cause of death of anyone over the age of 45 in Australia is heart disease or lung cancer. Now, you might be able to attribute that to aging, and in some cases you can, but in 2015, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare found that 62% of heart disease-related deaths were attributed to dietary risk. This means that 62% of heart disease deaths may have been prevented by dietary changes. So excess sugar, salt, and fat is the most lethal substance for anyone over the age of 45. Side note, Sugar, salt, and fat is the enemy I'm talking about here, not the way different people's bodies store fat or their weight or their BMI. This isn't a conversation about obesity or fat people. I'm just pointing out that trans fats are much, much worse for the general population than vaccines are, and skinny people die of heart disease too. And I'm not trying to shame anyone here. I used to social smoke. I really, really like alcohol. And both of these things have a much greater risk, and I'm talking much, much, much greater risk of killing me than any vaccine. Even now that I no longer smoke and I drink about 5% of what I used to, the damage is done. In terms of blood clots, if you're a woman who's taken the pill for any extended period of time, that's more likely to kill you than any vaccine. This isn't a pro-vax episode by any means. I'm just explaining how I got to my next point. This was a pretty deep rabbit hole. So of people aged 25 to 44, and according to my podcast stats, that's most of the listeners of this show, our number one cause of death is suicide, which is horrific. 
and so, so sad because with the right resources and support, suicide can be a preventable death. The second highest cause of death in our age group is classified as accidental poisoning. And I admit when I first read that, it gave me a little bit of a giggle. It doesn't mean you're like, oh, damn, I put my arsenic in tea again instead of sugar this morning. Must stop storing the rat poison on the tea shelf. Accidental poisoning refers to death by accidental drug and alcohol overdose. So in a very bleak truth bomb, if you are an Australian aged between 24 and 44, your mental health and drugs and alcohol are the biggest mortality risks to you. Both of these are amplified if you're a man. Yikes. So this episode isn't designed to scare you, I promise, and I'm sorry for all the bleak statistics, but it is just a chat about alcohol, our relationship to alcohol, some facts about alcohol, and maybe empowering you to cut back or quit if that is something that you are toying with. On that note, this week's guest is Millie Gooch from the Sober Girl Society. Millie is from the UK, and after spending her 20s as an actual blackout drunk, a few years ago, she got sober and is making it her mission to empower other people to give up the booze and get back their lives. Here's my chat with Millie. Hello and welcome. How has your week been? It's been really good. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. I'm so thrilled that you agreed to be on the podcast. I'm just so thrilled to have you here. What have you been up to this week? Oh, not a lot, if I'm totally honest. The sunshine has come out here, which is like a complete rarity. So I've just been literally in and out of the garden trying to get as much of it as possible because British summertime is notoriously about one to two weeks maximum. So this is it. We're in it. I can remember I went to uh, England years ago, like when I was 19, and that's a lot longer ago than I'm willing to admit, but I can remember (laughs) it being because you were saying, Millie was saying before we started recording that it's really hot where she is today, and for the Australians, it's 19 degrees. So yeah, we're we're all having a little giggle about that. But I can remember it being something like 17 degrees when I was over there because it was was like – December and they had a weird warm snap and all of the girls were out on like in this park just lying there like in their in their underwear just trying to soak up the sun and we we're just going yeah. what are you doing it was so odd <laughs> yeah no, that, that, that sounds like us is that your vitamin d you just try to get it when you can get it yeah I think it's because we literally have like a two-week period and then that is the only time to like go to pub gardens to sit outside I mean when you see the pictures on like the man online of the beach at the weekend and it's like you just can't even get on there because there's just like it's just wall to wall a sea of people on the beach our beaches are also pretty packed like Bondi can get pretty crazy but also like it's 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 a year-round thing for us we I mean where I live it's pretty cold but there's like a lot of you know beach places like Queensland they're basically you know they wear a jacket for two weeks in a year so they're literally the opposite of you yeah but um yeah so I absolutely adored your book um I, I don't really know what I was expecting but it was just such a fun and informative and totally non-judgmental read Uh, It was actually recommended to me by a reader and I was just wondering how hard was it to go sober when you didn't have any literature like this available to you? Yeah, so I was quite lucky that there were kind of like some things about, so what kind of started my journey was a book called The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. But I think why I wanted to write this one is because I I felt there was a couple of things missing out and there are some amazing quitlet books. 
the first one was I couldn't find anything written for kind of my age. I stopped drinking when I was 26. So for me, I was still really in that like social phase. So a lot of the, the books that I read were kind of like, if you don't want to go out, don't worry about it. But I thought, well, if I don't go out, I'm probably not going to have any friends. And I was, you know, just starting my career in like journalism and going to all these parties. And I knew that I couldn't really turn around to my boss and go, well, actually, I, I can't go to any of these things because I was really desperately trying to prove myself. So there weren't really any books that kind of went into the practical sides of you know this is how you do a sober wedding this is how you do a sober festival this is how you deal with drunk people so that was one of the things that I kind of really thought was missing was you know a a very practical guide that told you how to do those things and b something that was kind of aimed at younger millennials so that was the hardest thing for me is that I had a few books available to me but I also didn't kind of know anyone who was doing the same thing as me everything I read these people were kind of like late 30s early 40s and I was identifying with huge parts of their story but not thinking that's me that's I, I can see myself in that story so it, it, there definitely were some hard bits I think I took you know bits from podcasts bits from books bits from everything and try and pull them together to make my own kind of roadmap of sobriety really. I think that's why I found it so fascinating was because I, at the age of 26, there's just no way that I, I would have ever considered going soberish. I've done kind of three month stints without alcohol fairly regularly, but that was more for kind of fitness reasons and that kind of thing. And I've never been, you know, a, a proper binge drinker and my partner doesn't drink. Uh, he, he is sober, not for any particular reason other than it gives yeah. him a headache and he doesn't like it. And it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing being with someone who has been sober largely for most of our relationships. Relationship. And yeah, I just, I think it's so amazing that you were able to put together something for people of your age group, because as you were saying with the lit that already existed, I read some of those books when I was in my twenties or the, the stuff that was available. And there were things like, oh, you know, you know, you don't want a parent hungover. And I was like, well, I don't have kids. So yeah, and trust me, like, me. well, having kids makes a really big difference. It's much easier to drink less when you have yeah. kids because A, you're too tired. B, it's expensive because you have to hire people to come and take care of your kids while you go out drinking and then you have to parent them the next day like it's it makes a really big difference so when you're 26 you don't actually have those incentives it's like you know I'm going to be hungover tomorrow who cares I don't have anything to do anyway so yeah exactly and (laughs) and also like none of your friends have kids either so naturally they are still wanting to go out all the time as well so you're you're feeling like you need to keep up with them but oh actually I don't want to drink so where does this leave me so what has actually been the hardest part of your sobriety? Was it like, because you, you say in the book that uh, you were kind of deeply embroiled in this like Ladette kind of culture. And I, I can I can really see myself in, and I think a lot of Australian women, women would too, because I think we've got fairly similar drinking yes. cultures. You know, when you are Australian or from New Zealand or from the UK or from Ireland, you're all just like, we have that camaraderie. And then you meet people from other countries and it's like, oh, you, you have very different. Yeah, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get this. It's a, it's a whole thing. Um, so like what, what happened the first time you went, out with your friends for like a big boozy night yeah I think I did it quite differently to to what most other people kind of advise so I always say I don't really recommend this for everyone but my friend said straight away oh you know you're probably going to be boring you're not going to be as fun you're not going to stay out late and you know I'm quite stubborn so I thought well I'm going to prove them wrong so like one of the first things I did was go out on a night out until like 3am and 
looking back now, I can't believe I kind of had the courage to do that. But actually, it kind of served me really well because from the outset, I thought, well, I can tackle this. Like, it is going to be hard and it's not going to be easy breezy. But I've done the first night out. I didn't die. I was okay. And then I could just kind of keep building on that and building on that. Whereas I think had I kind of you know retreated from social life I might have overthought it quite a bit and you know got to a point where I decided actually this seems too scary I'm not going to do it so I kind of ripped the band-aid off but in terms of like the hardest things I think a lot of it is other people and I still hear it now so many people want to give up drinking but they're worried what their friends will think they're worried that they won't be involved in colleague things they're worried that people will think they're boring they're worried they'll lose their friends so it's it's a lot of what's hard about sobriety is actually other people, unfortunately. How did you find it from like when you first started doing it to a few months in? Did that change? Did your friends kind of think that, you know, oh, typical Millie, she'll be back in a couple of months or were they really, did, did they understand how serious you were about it? Yeah, I think at first they were a bit like, oh, she's probably not going to carry on with it. So I, I think there was kind of like, you know, a few mar- like remarks, a few jokes. It wasn't really smooth sailing. And then I remember I was going on a trip to Canada with one of my friends and she said, oh, well, you are going to drink when we go on holiday, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then I think I, I remember seeing her face and thinking, I think it's just dawned on her that this is like a thing now. And I think after that and after I did that big holiday and didn't drink throughout the thing I think that's when they kind of realized and I think that was a real turning point for them actually and it I always say it's not that they were unsupportive I've got incredible friends but they were kind of indifferent to it at the start and very like oh yeah all right it's just a phase and then there was kind of this 180 after I did that holiday of like oh this is amazing we're gonna like really get behind you now and it was actually shortly after that that holiday that I started Sober Girl Society so I think that was then when they really got on board and knew that I was doing it like forever basically have any of your friends jumped on the bandwagon with you not completely teetotal but so many of them have got really sober curious and I think that's down to a few things I think one is that I realized I was the ringleader I was always the one being like next club next bar next drink (laughs) so without me there's no like momentum really to push them forward (laughs) to drinking I think that was one thing you were the drinking mothership I was. I was always the one who... They were probably all sighing and I didn't even realise. I thought they were all really excited, but it turns out now that I don't think they were. And then I think the other thing is just naturally, when they see someone who is going out, doing all these things, not drinking, and like their life is, if anything, better than it was before, I think it is kind of like a nice nod or like inspiration to be like oh well actually I could probably do it too and you know like if I go around one of my friends houses I'll take loads of non-alcoholic drinks and they'll try them and then they'll find one that they like so that if they go out they know that they can order that because I think even that is quite a big thing even though it's quite a small thing of like oh well I won't even know what to order at the bar so many people say like I get embarrassed because I don't want to go up to the bar and say you know have you got this non-alcoholic drink so giving them the confidence to be like actually this is the drink I want just to go up to the bar and know what they're ordering so I think in a way it's really helped them so yeah it turns out I think I was I was the ringleader but they have definitely (laughs) become very sober curious I would say 
So how do you feel about being sober entirely? Like you mentioned in your book that for you personally, it needs to be an all or nothing situation. Do you think that people can have a healthy relationship with alcohol at all or is total abstinence really the best way to do it? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So even the phrase healthy relationship with alcohol, I always (laughs) find quite funny because we don't say, oh, a healthy relationship with cigarettes because you know, by default, cigarettes aren't healthy. But I definitely think people can have healthier relationships. I don't, I wouldn't go around saying, yeah, people can have healthy relationships because we know that alcohol has so many of the same things that cigarettes do in terms of cancer risk. So, but people definitely can have healthier relationships. It's also very relative. Like if someone's drinking 100 units a week, that is a lot of units. But if they've cut that down from 200 units a week, that's a massive improvement. So people can definitely change their relationship with alcohol. I think for me, it's just that it is mentally exhausting. If I wanted to moderate alcohol, I probably could, but I would have to try really hard. So I have to, like, very set rules, like never more than two drinks, never drink when I'm unhappy, never drink this, never drink that. Like, it's quite like a lot of mental gymnastics, which is what I found when I was trying to moderate my drinking. And then because so often, I mean, the way alcohol literally affects our brain is it affects like your prefrontal cortex, which is the part that kind of weighs up good and bad and consequences and makes rational decisions. So after you've had two drinks, you don't have the same willpower that you had at drink (laughs) zero. So it's really hard to not go, oh, go on, then I'll have a third one. And that's kind of what I was doing is I was going, oh, go on, I'll have a third. Then I had a fourth. And then I woke up the next morning just feeling really like, oh, I tried again and I failed again. And then you kind of get this shame and this failure and that kind of cycle can make you drink again so for me it's been so freeing and I think some people really think of sobriety as like a restriction but I found moderation more restrictive because I was always thinking about it and putting these rules and and feeling guilty when I didn't stick to them whereas now I don't have to think like thinking about alcohol doesn't take up any of my mental space so it frees it up to do so many other things so I have always found it quite liberating but there, there is an idea that people are either a natural moderator or a natural abstainer. So for natural abstainers, they find it easier to just say, no, thank you. And this could be with anything. And I think I know that's me because even with like Maltesers, if someone puts <laughs> Maltesers in front of me, I, there's no way on earth I would just have one or two. I'm having like 25 plus. <laughs> so I that kind of signals to me, actually, no, I'm probably a natural abstainer. It is easier for me to say no thank you to the Maltesers because as soon as I've had one, I'm like, that's it. So there is kind of a theory, but I mean, there's no absolutes on that. But I think, yeah, people can have healthier relationships with alcohol. I see it in, you know, I always say my boyfriend's quite sober curious. He'll buy like a four pack of beers on a Friday night and then two weeks later, two of them are still in the fridge. And drinking me would have thought that that was totally weird because I would have to drink all four. So I, I think people definitely can. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's, a, it's a really interesting question, actually. I think there's a lot to it. Hi, it's Carly. Just popping in to remind you to leave a review for the podcast if you haven't already. Just go to the show page, not the episode page, scroll right down to the bottom and where it says leave a review, 
leave a review. Every time you leave a review, my face looks like I just got a message from a person I have a crush on. And that's a 100% true story. If you want me to smile at my phone like a fool, leave a review today. Also, this week's episode bonus is a resource list of soberish things, books, podcasts, social media accounts for you to consume that may help you change your narrative around your relationship with alcohol. You can grab this resource by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash very excellent habits. I do also wonder about generationally our relationship with alcohol and how it is different to other generations. So for instance, I know a lot of uh, people in my parents' age group, which are, you know, baby boomers, they drink daily. And that's not something that my generation does. We are typical binge drinkers. So most of the people who are my age and below won't drink from Monday to Thursday or Monday to Wednesday, depending on who you are, and just drink pretty consistently from kind of Thursday until Sunday. So what are your thoughts on moderation versus abstinence applicable to generations and their habits in drinking? Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's complicated because binge drinking is actually not very good for you in terms of like, so here our rules are 14 units a week. And if you're going to drink them, you need to spread them over the course of at least three days. And you also have to make sure that you're having like two drink free days or two to three so it's quite hard to preach moderation for binge <laughs> drinking. Um, but obviously, I, I think we, I don't know if you have over there in Oz, like low risk drinking guidelines, but that's that's what ours are because uh, there's a thing called the J curve, which is like, if you think of the shape of a J is up to 14 units, you're kind of, your risks are rising quite slowly and then at at kind of 14 units they spike up really high so that's kind of what we're advised I mean they do differ from country to country so it it totally depends but it it, I think it does it just does depend if you find abstaining easier or not so uh, we were chatting before about the whole Ladette culture thing and how we obviously have a similar thing in Australia with this kind of odd respect for women who can, you know, drink men under the table. Do you have any tips for reversing this alcohol equals power thing that's specifically being aimed at women? Yeah, I think it's two things probably. One is really thinking about the industry itself and learning about the industry itself. So, you know, if alcohol is you know, a detrimental thing in your life, think who is actually making money from that. And when you look at it, all the, you know, people who own alcohol brands are rich, white, male billionaires. So that's kind of helped me reframe it as I think, well, why am I going to give myself hangovers and anxiety and all those awful things that come with, with drinking, or at least did for me, just to make someone richer, um, especially a man. So I think thinking about that narrative is interesting because you know the alcohol industry have managed to market to women very cleverly so that they make money from it so they have sold us this narrative that it is empowering so when you think of it that way it's actually very empowering to go against that narrative to be like actually you can't convince me that alcohol is doing all these amazing things for me and then I think also just understanding how empowering it is to not drink to be able to you know take back control of your life to be able to do things when you want to be on your own time you know I'm not like a a great woman of business but you know if you are running your own business you can wake up in the morning you can make more money you can do all these things that can be really empowering and just 
you know, taking back control of my own life, not giving money to this industry that is perpetuating this narrative that women need alcohol to be empowered and to have fun and to be glamorous, that actually feels more empowering to me. And so I'd say like learning about those things has been one of the key things for me, actually how the industry works and how they have over the years tried to target women and other demographics just to sell their product. So what what is your advice for someone who wants to go sober but can't quite cut it out so is there a good time or a particular practice to start with yeah I mean I always say there's never a good time to go sober because if you want to you could make every excuse under the sun of you know oh I've got this hen party I've got this wedding it's a summer day you know it's a Tuesday (laughs) You you can literally make up anything that you want to but I would say just start like learning just absorb it into your life you know listen to a few podcasts like this read a few books I would say like try and you know diversify your feed like your Instagram feed or your social media feed in terms of drinking and sobriety culture because at the moment currently you might just be going down and down your Instagram and you just see cocktail rose you know wine o'clock and you don't even realize subliminally how much you're taking those messages on so even follow a few sobriety accounts just to kind of balance that out a little bit and see perhaps a different narrative I think you can absorb this into your life slowly and then I think one of the things that I always say is just get mindful about your relationship with alcohol so you can ask yourself questions like when do when am I most likely to drink is it when I'm stressed is it when I've had a bad day at work you know why do I drink is it because I'm unhappy is it because I'm lacking confidence in this social situation who do I drink with you know are there some certain friends that I always get really carried away with just so many of us are so mindless at least I was about my relationship with alcohol you know I was always double parked as in holding two drinks I'd all uh, like always <laughs> get my parked, next drink before that. yeah <laughs> just you know dip wandering around with two drinks in my hand I would order <laughs> the next one before I'd even finish this one so I hadn't even let the effects wash over me and to understand how it was affecting me I was just like next one next one and I never stopped to question, like, why am I actually drinking this much apart from because I want to get drunk? Okay, but why do I want to get drunk? And I never asked myself those questions. I just thought, well, everyone else does it. I love the way, like, I just get blackout drunk. And I never really thought, okay, is it because actually I've got a bit of a lack of confidence in social situations? Is it because I'm trying to forget my week because I've had a really rubbish week? So just really trying to understand your relationship with alcohol because so many of us don't. And I would say to add to that to kind of, understand your relationship with alcohol it's important to have a break from it so whether that is you take one per part in like a dry challenge like sober october or dry january i would push it if you can to 90 days because i think that's a good time to break a habit and also you do some of those things that might be a bit scary i think if you only take 30 days off and you do something like dry january maybe you probably don't even do a night out you might not even see friends in that time whereas if you do 90 days you're probably going to tackle some of those social situations and actually really learn about yourself and okay well what is it that you know when do i feel triggered to drink alcohol when do i feel the pull towards it do i get physical cravings so i think taking a break is one of the best things that you can do I really like that you made the distinction between taking a month off and taking 90 days off. I've I've had a relationship with taking breaks from alcohol in the past and I've done, I'd say two or three, three month stints. And they are really the, the stints that have changed a lot in my behavior with drinking and also just in, in teaching other people as well, because taking a month off alcohol, a lot of people might not even notice you doing that. But if you take 90 days off, that's kind of teaching other people that you're taking this quite seriously and yeah, advertising that this is something that's really important to you rather than just a a 30 day something that you're doing for charity. 
Yeah, exactly. But I mean, even the kind of like, I don't want to put anyone off and just doing a month if they don't like want to do 90 days, because even the research shows there's real good health benefits, you know, lower cholesterol, lower blood pressure, things like that. <laughs> and also, they've done a lot of studies that have kind of shown people who took part in things like dry January, six months later, their kind of, you know, their weekly units have gone down, their daily average drunkenness had gone down. So there's, there's all sorts of good benefits to even taking a month off. But I would say if you're happy to push it, I would go for the like, a 90-day stretch. So in Australia, and I don't know if this is true in the um, in the UK as well, but we love to talk crap about how red wine is good for your heart. Yes. Um, and I really, <laughs> I really wanted to read this quote from your book, which also happens to be a quote. So in 2018, a study published in The Lancet, which is a leading medical journal, confirmed previous research that has shown there's no safe level of alcohol consumption. The researchers admit moderate drinking may offer some level of protection against heart disease by boosting levels of good cholesterol in the blood, but found that the risk of cancer and other diseases outweighs this protection. So on that quote, your book is so accessible and kind and your language is really inclusive, but at the end of the day, we really all just should quit drinking, shouldn't we? Like, honestly, after reading your book, it does seem like the most sensible thing to do. I mean, when you learn the science of it, you do realise that, like, it it does affect every part of our life and especially like our physical health and mental health perhaps I would say negatively or at least more negatively than it does positively so you know in my opinion it would be wonderful if everyone went sober I think the world would be a different place (laughs) but I appreciate that not everyone wants to and that's also fine I'm massively into harm reduction I want people to kind of have a relationship with alcohol that causes them the least chaos and destruction and you know there are a few good books that kind of really look at this there's one called Drink by Professor David Nutt which is a very interesting book because he was the UK government chief drug and alcohol advisor but he also owns a wine bar so he kind of wears two very different hats (laughs) and he kind of talks about you know getting the most out of drinking without getting the bad stuff and a lot of that is to do with you know like staying under the 14 unit guidelines until your like risks go up and so uh, yeah in a in a dream world I think everyone could benefit from binning booze but I appreciate that that's not for everyone so I'm still massive on yeah harm reduction sober curiosity just understanding your relationship with alcohol a bit better yeah, I just really like how accessible you've made it, particularly because you are targeting people that are of your age group, which is kind of, you know, mid-20s, those people that it almost seems like it's not really an option for people of that age group. So I'm really pleased that you're out there kind of pioneering this for that particular age group. Um, there has actually been a lot of positive research recently coming out about the younger generations, like I'm talking even younger than you, and how mm. they think that alcohol is kind of a bit gross and weird. Um, is there anything that we can be doing to encourage this because it seems like a good direction I think it's interesting because there's kind of two theories with this one is that you know they are turning their backs on drinking and drugs and alcohol but the the other one is that actually as drinking use is going down drug use is going up so things like Uh. cannabis and benzodiazepines so that is the wonder and I'll be interested to see over the next few years how that develops but I just think like more positive role models I think it's great when like you know celebrities come out and talk about their sobriety I think that is 
I think people think that like, you know, celebrity sobriety lists are quite shallow, but actually I think they do so much good because people look at them and they think, wow, they're going to like the Oscars and and the BAFTAs and they're doing all these amazing things and actually they're doing it without alcohol. So maybe so could I. Um, So I think just sharing the good stories, I think sharing the education, I think, you know, Gen Z love kind of social justice. They're really engaged that way. And at the moment, the alcohol industry is probably one of the worst industries. Um, but we look at things like the diet industry and we've massively gotten onto that, but we haven't yet got there with the alcohol industry. So, you know, education around that, that's what I try and do as well to actually get people interested in like, hey, there is this like massive, massive billionaire corporations and they're selling you something that is actually very harmful to you. But, you know, you don't know all the facts about it. So I think continuing with those things is really interesting. I just think, yeah, more like awareness, more more role models, great. So that was my chat with Millie and I'm honestly now such a huge fan of her work and she's a complete peach. I do want to apologize if I took on some form of a posh British accent while I was talking to her. I tend to posh up a bit when I talk to British people. So what are you supposed to do with all this information? Honestly, it's up to you. Personally, I'm pretty okay with my drinking habits. I've never been a blackout drunk, but I've certainly had my share of binge evenings. In the past few years, though, I've cut back even more. I didn't drink at all during lockdown because my partner Ben doesn't drink and I don't drink alone. If we have visitors or we travel, I'll have a few glasses of wine if I feel like it or if I'm at a wedding or something. And I know that this constitutes special occasion drinking, but I think I'm okay with that. I am finding I'm cutting back more and more. And if I accidentally end up being totally sober by the time I'm in my 50s, that honestly wouldn't surprise me. And as Millie said, we don't really need to worry about labels like sober, sober curious, alcohol free. None of it matters now or nor will it ever. This episode is just about learning some facts and considering some options. One thing Millie's book really made me think about, though, was the promotion of alcohol. And shortly after reading her book, and I'm talking basically the next day, I chose to end an influencer relationship I had with an alcohol brand because I'm no longer comfortable promoting alcohol. For the record, I adored and really believed in this alcohol brand's mission. They have a partnership with a brand that cleans bottles from the ocean. And for every bottle you buy, that means a certain amount of debris is removed from the ocean. And I will continue to buy their wine because it's great wine. And I will recommend them if the conversation arises but I'm going to be more alcohol conscious in the things that I post and write about. And I think that's the point, making small changes here and there so we're in control of our relationship with alcohol rather than the other way around. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Very Excellent Habits, the podcast that helps you create little habits for a big life. I'm Carly Jacobs. You can find me on Instagram at Very Excellent Habits. You can also email me contact at carlyjacobs.com. You can also record a question for me to answer on the show at speakpipe.com forward slash very excellent habits. Don't forget this week's episode bonus is a resource list of soberish things. So books, podcasts, social media accounts for you to consume that may help change your narrative around your relationship with alcohol. You can grab that resource by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash very excellent habits. Oh, and one more thing, please leave a rating and a review. It's the best way to help other people find the podcast. Until then, remember, little habits, big life. 